Uh, welcome all to uh, today's public lecture, The Naked Swimmer, Can Spain and the Euro Overcome This Crisis? Um, as many of you know, uh, Spain is widely considered to be the weak link in Europe today. Perhaps not the weakest link, that spot is reserved, is reserved for Portugal. But many think that it could be next after Portugal for a handout from the European Union and the MF for a rescue. Uh, this public lecture examines this hypothesis uh, by analyzing the origins and the evolution of the current crisis and the growth perspectives for Spain. The speaker is Professor Luis Garicano. Mr. Garicano is currently Professor uh, of Economics and Strategy here at the London School of Economics in the Departments of Management and Economics. Professor Garicano's fields of, of expertise are in the areas of the theory of the firm, managerial economics, markets, the organization of labor, e-commerce, IT, and the knowledge economy, among others. He has published wide, widely in these areas in the top academic journals in both economics and strategy. He obtained his PhD in economics from the University of Chicago where he also began his academic career. First an assistant professor, then associate professor, and finally as a full professor of economics and strategy at the Graduate School of Business. He has also held visiting professor appointments at MIT, Sloan School of Management, and at the London Business School. Importantly, in 2007, Professor Garicano received the Fundación Herrero Prize awarded to the most brilliant uh, economists in Spain under the age of 40. As many of you are probably aware of, through the Madrid-based uh, FEDEA Foundation, he has been involved in efforts to promote the structural reforms in the Spanish economy. In particular, he has co-authored important proposals uh, for reform in the labor markets, the housing markets, and the pension and the health systems. These proposals have received a great deal of attention, both in the media and in the, public, in the political sector and in my humble opinion, are likely to have a substantial impact in the near future. Finally, Professor Aricano co-edits what is the most widely read economics blog in Spanish, Nada is Gratis, which can be found at www.nadaisgratis.com. Please join me in welcoming Professor Aricano to this lecture. Thank you. Nada, nada is Gratis is our, is our translation, uh, our own translation of uh, there is no free lunch, uh, nothing is free which I guess is, is the right title for an economics blog in Spain. Um, <coughs> if this can be turned off, uh, I, think, I think they said they would turn it off. So it's not echoing, but it is. The person who was in the back said they would turn it off. That one, okay, they heard. Okay, so welcome to the lecture, this public lecture. I'm, I'm uh, glad to have you here. And indeed, it's a, it's a bit of a terrifying moment to be a Spaniard, to be honest. It's, uh, we're just standing on this uh, Willy Coyote moment where we are just at the edge of the precipice and we start to think like if we look down, we're just going to fall. So it's, 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 an, unusual, it's an unusual moment. And, and I, I want to take advantage of, of this moment to, to reflect on where we are, where you come from, and, and, and what can be done about it. Um, the question is the question that we would like to answer at the end is whether we can what are the prospects for Spain and whether we can we can get out of this crisis. Um, the title comes from this phrase of Warren Buffett, which I think describes the situation in Spain, in Spain as, as you will see pretty well. Uh, Warren Buffett, talking about financial uh, crisis, uh, likes to say he said in his 2001, I think, chairman's letter, uh, "You only see who's swimming naked when the tide goes out." You, Everybody, when there's all this financial, all this liquidity in the markets, everybody seems to be doing well. People who don't have good jobs 
you know, buy big, big cars because they refinance with their houses and companies that are not doing so well get loans and continue and everything looks good and then the tide goes out and you see who's swimming naked. And to some extent, I'm going to argue that's, that's what's hap happened to Spain. So I'm going to talk about six things. I'm going to talk about the real estate crisis briefly and I think that's the part that I think it's most conventional and that's similar to other places. I'm going to talk about the underlying issues of growth in Spain. I, I feel it's a little bit of an echo still. It seems, it seems it's okay. Do you know why? No, you were making a... No. Do you guys hear an echo? I hear an echo. It's, if you don't, it's good. So, um, the, the real estate crisis, I think it's a, it's a more or less conventional thing. I think we've seen it in other places. Then I want to talk about the online growth model. Then I'll talk about financing, which is always a problem in this, problem, in this bubble issues, right? If, if, if things, as, as, as you know, like my one moment of fame in, in, in my life will, will, will ever be, I guess, the Queen asking me this question, if this was such a big deal, how come we didn't know it? Queen Elizabeth here in LSE. And, and that's always the question, right? If, if this, Spain was in so much trouble, why, why were people financing this, 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 this? Where was this lending coming from? Then we'll talk about what's happening now, the bank run, the run on all financial assets, and, and, and what's kind of, I mean, it's a different type of run, obviously, but, but, but what's, what's going on. Then we'll talk about the policy reactions, and then we'll talk about wider growth perspective. So it's a pretty full agenda. I'll try to keep it moving and, and, to, keep you, and to keep you interested. And then we'll have, of course, a time for a Q&A. Okay, so let's start with the bubble. House prices went up a lot. Okay, that's not unusual. It's, there's four places where this has happened. Uh, as we see, I will see two of, two of, the, two of the other ones, uh, UK, the US, Ireland, and Spain. Those are the four main bubbles. If you look at the general house price, uh, real, these are real house prices per square meter in real terms, went down from under 750 euros to just 1,500, so more or less double in real terms, so inflation adjusted. Uh, the bubble, as I was saying, is larger. It's large. In fact, it's larger than in other places. It's larger than the bubble we saw in the UK and the one we saw in the US. So this compares the um, house price to the income, to the household income. Basically, we start at a little bit over three. Uh, you should think of this as three years. How many years do you need to work in order to earn to pay for your house? So three, three times to something like seven times your household income, or almost eight times. Whereas in the UK, it went from three times to, to six. The other thing that is interesting is not only that the bubble was large, but also that it really, as you see, it hasn't really been corrected. Okay, we'll talk a lot about that later. Uh, you see that it's still far from being uh, far from being back to the to the to the starting point, and we'll try to study why. Um, it's interesting that this is not London. Okay, this is not Manhattan. This is more like Arizona for people who've been following these things. Meaning, there was a bubble with massive construction. Okay. This, this year is, is very, was very famous at the time. In, in Spanish press, everybody was, was writing about this. Uh, the number of housing units that were produced in Spain that year was bigger than Germany, France, England, the UK, and Italy together. Okay, so, so these, are, these are a lot of housing units. And uh, over 700,000, you see we start from a, from a base level of 200, uh, 300,000, and we went really, really up to, to a, very, very large number of housing units. So prices raising a lot, and it's not like, oh, well, we cannot build like in London, so it's all adjustments through prices here. 
we were building. I mean, essentially, if you've ever gone to Spain, you know it's essentially empty to a large extent, except in the East, in the, in the East Coast, in the Mediterranean Coast. It's all a big central plain with very good communications. So to a first order approximation, if you think uh, basic economics tells you everything, all the adjustments happen. I mean, in the short run, you could have some raise in prices. But essentially, at the end of the day, with a horizontal supply curve, which is what happens when you have a infinite space, I'm, I'm exaggerating, of course, it's not infinite space, but it's essentially empty. At the end of the day, the prices have to drop because, um, because people can just continue adding. Right? And there are places where there is scarcity, like London, which are probably Barcelona, which has mountains behind, which is uh, many places in the Basque country, which are very, very like really valleys where you really have to, to fit in. But, but in many places, there is construction really can take place, as we see in this graph. Why is Spain? And this is, this is a really uh, always a, 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 a difficult question, right? I mean, as you know, Greece is in trouble, Italy is in trouble, Portugal is in trouble, Ireland is in trouble, but they're all very different. Greece had a lot of public debt and was lying, essentially. Spain never lied about its finances. Okay? And in fact, it never got into really lots of trouble from a deficit perspective. Portugal has had a period of no growth. Ireland has had a housing bubble and private debt. So Spain looks a little bit more like Ireland. But many other places didn't get. So of, of these other countries, neither Italy nor France nor, nor any of the other southern countries have had big raises in housing prices. Why Spain? So there's a couple of things that I wanted to point out. One is we've had essentially 20 years of declining interest rates. Okay? Spain has gone through a period of, of being outside Europe to be in Europe, to then being in Europe and in the exchange rate mechanism, and then to be in the, in the, in the European Monetary Union, which continuously ba main, means basically people have been perceiving and, and, and facing situation of, in, of every year it's, it's, it's cheaper to borrow. So we have lower, lower interest rates. And essentially, if you think of, and this should be a D instead of an R, I apologize. If you think of, of housing, so this is the ratio of, of rents to the price of the house. If you think of an arbitrage condition, which is what I get from having a house should be what I get from having another asset, plus some risk premium minus the growth of the house prices. So if you think of an arbitrage condition, which is if to a first approximation, so forget about these last two terms, to a first approximation, you could say if I get 4% from my, from my treasury bills, I should also get 4% from my rental on my house. If interest rates go down a lot, then prices can raise a lot. Okay? In fact, if you think that interest rates, real interest rates went down, in fact, they went down by 10, 10, 10, 10 real points. That's a massive drop. But just think of the change from 97 to 2004. They went down from 4 to 0.5%, the real interest rates. You could justify a rise in price to eight times, so a 700% increase in price. Obviously, that's not the true drop. It, we don't have a permanent drop to 0.5%. But there is a sense in which people perceive a large drop in interest rates that is there to stay. We're going to be stable. We're going to be part of the euro area. We're going to be part of the single currency. So interest rates are much lower. And so we can borrow and get into this. Uh, and and, and this, essentially, these, these assets are yielding a lot. So let's buy houses and, and, and profit from that. That leads to the start to, 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 an, increase, to an increase in prices. The other aspect, this is very peculiar in Spanish, is a massive increase in immigration. Um, this figure on the left has, uh, this, this line has the percent of the population that is immigrant, uh, that is foreign born, okay? So when we start our story in 1999, 2% of the population was immigrant born, okay? 
When we finish our story, 12%. That's 10% of the population in 10 years. In 10 years, uh, Spain, which had 4 million people, got more than 4 million people of immigrants. Okay, so um, what that means is, again, because the supply curve is probably completely elastic, in the long run, that doesn't need to affect a lot of the housing prices, but it does mean that there's a big surge in demand, and it means that people have this perception that housing is the asset that is scarce at that, at that time. Um, there's a couple of things that make the problem, that compound a bit the problem. One is, everyone in the UK likes to say that the UK is a national, nation of homeowners. Look at the home ownership rate in the UK. 65, 70% of people live in owner-occupied accommodation, own their own house, the rest 25% rent. This is Spain, okay? So Spain is the country in Europe that has the largest share of households who live in a, in a dwelling that they actually own, okay? That makes it, that makes all of, this, all of these problems bigger because the wealth effect you're going to have when you have a big increase in, your, in, your, in, your, in the price of housing, everybody in the country is going to feel richer and is going to go out and consume, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so you get a little bit of an extra kick in your, in your potential bubble through this channel. This is, people think it's cultural, but it isn't, okay? Uh, this is the proportion of households rented in the 50s. What happened is Franco had imposed, this is a little bit of a footnote, he had imposed very protectionist uh, uh, rules in favor of renters who basically you couldn't raise the rent uh, on, on uh, you couldn't raise, raise rental like it happened in some cities in, in New York, for example. And that meant when inflation came in the 70s, Essentially, people were living in houses for nothing because the rentals wouldn't update. And so people learned the lesson and withdrew from the rental market. And there's basically no rental market in Spain. So essentially, everybody lives in a the house they own. Interest rates go down. They feel wealthy. They, 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 as prices start to grow, they feel wealthy. And they start to borrow money for real estate purposes. Okay? This is where things, where things get really hairy, right? Because if you, if you look at the real estate lending as a proportion of GDP, lending for developers in 1995 was 8% of GDP. In 2010, 42% of the GDP, 400 billion. It's very easy to convert billion to GDP in Spain because GDP is essentially a trillion. Okay, so you can always kind of, hundreds of billions are percents. So 420 billion. Uh, of, of developer loans and construction loans from starting from just 15 years before 8% to 40% of GDP. Similarly, for households, this is companies, so that means 50% of the, of the productive of the lending in Spain was going to housing. Similarly, for households, um, they went from 69 to 80% of the, of the lending to households was for acquiring housing, and that meant that the share of GDP that was given for credit for households to buy housing went from 17 to 62%. If you add, you see that more than 100% GDP was being lent to uh, housing-related activities, of course, not, not necessarily very productive lending. Um, this is household leverage. This is the same graph, but just to, just to tell you how fast and how amazing these numbers are. Okay? The average household goes from 40% in debt to 90% in debt. And uh, if you see the amount of, of loans, actually the, the number of loans that, that there are there. So, for example, 90, June 1999, or this is uh, December 97, 100 billion people owe, households owe 100 billion for housing-related purposes. And at the, at the end of the cycle, it's something like 650 billion. So, I mean, you see in a very short time massive, massive increases in, in, in lending to, to housing-related activities. 
at some level, that's relatively common to these bubbles. What I'm going to say now is a little bit less common. It's probably a little bit more worrying. The underlying growth model was not very healthy. Um, Spain had a period of very sharp convergence. If you look at the period 1999-98, Spain was growing almost as fast as everywhere, well, faster than everywhere else in Europe and faster than, uh, uh, almost as fast as the US. When the next period comes, 1999-2007, Spain was growing substantially faster than anywhere else. So we had a very fast period of convergence in terms of GDP uh, per capita. But the problem is the, the, the growth process is not very healthy. Um, it does, there is a convergence on inflation, although Spain still had inflation over the euro area. Um, and there's certainly a convergence in unemployment rates. This is going to be a big, it's going to be a big player in my story. Uh, the unemployment rate in Spain, look how it fluctuates. I mean, it's always been high, but look at the big employment destructions and creations in every recession. Okay, we go from 10 to 20, back to 15, up to 24, down to 10, and then back to 20 again. So it's really, it's a labor market that, that fluctuates a lot, as I will discuss in a, in a minute. Um, so we had convergence up to this moment in inflation, employment, it looks good, but there is some underlying problem, which is that Spain is in a model which has very little productivity growth. So here, what we do is something very standard in economics, which is to say, when you think of the GDP growth per capita that you had, and these are 10 years of growth per capita, which is 3.1% for the US, 3.6% for Spain, how much is using more staff to do more things, and how much is doing more things with the same staff you had? Okay? So is it that we're putting more bricks, using more guys to put more bricks and build more houses? That would be just basically capital and labor. Or is it that the same person is now more productive and because he has a, a, a new technology or something, he can actually put more bricks per unit of labor and per unit of capital he employs? In the US, uh, labor grew, capital grew quite a bit, but productivity increased substantially. In Europe, labor grew, capital grew more, productivity didn't grow, grow very much. There were some laggards in the European Union, including Spain, Italy. In Spain, growth was much higher, but essentially, it was all about more people working, okay? Immigrants, unemployed people joining the labor force, and increasing, increasing participation of women in the labor force, big increase in participation of women in the labor force. Productivity didn't increase, okay? That's always a worry, because one thing we know is that for society to grow over the longer run, it needs to generate more resources per capita, okay? If, if we don't generate more resources per capita, then eventually, you know, we're not going to have more capital to add, more people to add. At some point, basically, the growth gets exhausted. This is, this, is the, um, this is the main concern that I'm going to, to express today. Of the productivity grab, uh, gap that I, that I showed in the previous graph, some of the gap has to do with more of our activity is in low productivity sectors, like construction. But the largest part of the gap has to do with lower productivity within each sector. The different sectors of the Spanish economy, textile manufacturing, uh, retail, etc., were less productive. Okay. Um, and what that meant is that as the, as the decade was advancing, Spain was losing competitiveness. Related, relative to the real unit labor cost of production in Germany, Spain lost 33. Spanish labor got 33% more expensive. As we are employing workers who are not getting more productive and their wages are going up, 
they are getting more expensive to employ. Okay? So Spain is the, the unit labor cost in Spain is growing very substantially. Look at the, at, at the flags. This is from a study I did with McKinsey, and they like to put the graphs of the flags, which makes it very pretty. But look at the flags here, which are more or less the ones you would expect okay, in terms of the countries that are, that are, having, that are having trouble. Um, so as you lose competitiveness, as, as this growth is taking place through employing more labor that gets more and more expensive, but not making the labor more productive, etc., what you see is, well, quite a bit of export growth, no question about it, but a massive, massive import growth and an increasing current account deficit. Okay? Um, at the peak, uh, 100 billion over 10% of GDP. Okay. Now, for those of you who are, who are not ec economists, I mean, this is just, just an account identity. If you are having a deficit, you need to finance it from abroad. Okay? So the, the, the fact that there is a current account deficit means you have a total financing need year in, year out. So every year, Spain ha is accumulating this debt Okay, that uh, amounts to, at the end, and I'm not discounting here, but interest rates are so low, it doesn't really matter. It, it a very, very large debt that, at the end, amounts to uh, have just, just from these 10 years, okay, 500 billion okay, euros. Um, Spain is not the only country. And to some extent, Spain has been having these kind of problems before. And some other countries have. These are three other countries that we are now very familiar with lately that this is the moment where the euro starts and this is what happens to their current account deficits. These countries essentially are seeing labor costs and are seeing um, uh, their basically productivity decline relative to Germany and are seeing increasingly big deficits, which mean they have financing needs from abroad, which means they're accumulating debt. And as long as the markets think the euro is one area, it doesn't matter, they're continuing financing all this. The moment the markets, and that's what I meant by the Minsky moment in the title, the Minsky moment is the same as the Willy Coyote moment. Okay? It's just a more technical way to say it. The Willy Coyote is the moment where you're, you're just there standing. The first law of physics of Willy Coyote is you only fall when you realize that you're on top of the ledge, right? When you're on top of the air. So you're running, I run over here, and then I look and I fall. So in theory, this shouldn't happen, right? I mean, if you think. If you think economics shouldn't work like that, it shouldn't work as a sudden stop where suddenly everybody's like, oh, look, this happened. Well, it's been happening for years, right? But the truth is, suddenly, here, people thought, oh, look, these guys need financing. I never realized, okay? This, it, the fact is, it wasn't news, okay? This debt level was being accumulated over many years. This is the, the, the proportion of debt to GDP ratio. We are in better shape than England and the UK to some, in some measures. We'll see whether this is true or not later. Basically, the UK has also lots of assets, so they are in better shape than, than we are. Spain is more of a net liability. But it has a big private debt that has been accumulating over all these years, and it amounts to three times the entire GDP of the country. Okay. Um, so that's what I mean by my naked swimming. Okay? We had a larger state bubble, a very big prosperity, very apparent. If any of you travel to Spain, you'll see highways which are like 100 times better than any highway you'll see in the UK, airports which are 100 times better, trains which are like don't bear comparison, all the public spaces, everything. And you think, wow, these guys are really rich. Okay? But the truth is, 
and some nice Germans out there were lending us the money. We didn't really have it, okay? <laughs> um, I'll, I'll show you who was lending us the money, so let me not be fastidious about it. I have a graph telling you who was lending us the money. Um, was this unknown? This is a beautiful quote. I mean, I never put a slide with so much text, obviously, but this time it deserves it. This is the governor of the Bank of Spain today. And before he was a governor, he had been a very prominent politician in the Socialist Party, and he was a very informed economics commentator. He's a pretty informed and pretty smart and sharp person. And he writes in 2003, essentially, he writes, when we see mortgage lending growing at 22%, we know that this is going to continue to 2006. But the growth, the growth differential due to domestic demand and concentrated in construction can be maintained for some time, but this is going to be, this drug of domestic demand is going to be exhausted. Okay. He said this. Seven years, we will see negative effects. He even put the date. Okay? It, this, you can see articles by him. You can see articles by the best defense economists. The Queen's question doesn't apply to Spain. Okay? People early on were aware that the Spanish productive money was not generating growth productivity, that if we were incurring big current account deficits, that debt was growing very much. And of course, what you're going to ask is, well, still, so these guys, all these guys knew it, and so I mean, what, what, what is? I mean, he was a, he is the governor of the Bank of Spain. I mean, you, we should ask him. Okay, I don't know, but it's not like oh, we didn't know what was going on. Okay, we did. I mean, you could say actually it applies even better. Okay, so where is the money coming from, and how come is all this money flowing in? Third question. Um, so we have big growth in leverage, meaning leverage means people are taking a lot of debt. Low productivity, and yet the money is flowing in. And the question is, why? Okay. Um, what is the regulator doing? What is the Bank of Spain doing? And where is the financing coming from? Uh, Spain had, the Bank of Spain, maybe in part because of the governor we had, but this was, it was even before, uh, the two main people uh, writing this, many of these measures are now important international civil servants. It was a very well-run and very proactive institution, and they were realizing lending was going wild. So they introduced a new idea, which was statistical provisioning. They forced banks to make provisions for losses that they didn't have. Just because there's more credit, you have to provision more. Normally, the way you do your provision is you, you start by provisioning loans that start to turn bad, etc. No. Here, you have to start to provision even though you don't have any losses or any loans that are turning bad. In fact, your book is looking great. You have to make these statistical provisions. The provisions grew very much between 2002 and 2000-2004, and everybody was criticizing the Bank of Spain for giving a competitive disadvantage to the Spanish banks and forcing them to do provisions that other banks didn't have to carry. Um, the provisioning was successful to some extent, and is the reason why is part of the reason why the banks in Spain still fine, even though there was this big bubble, or have been fine until now. But it didn't really stop leverage from growing, and it didn't stop the real estate bubble. Um, so this is the credit growth. Okay, so we see years of credit growth. Look at these numbers. Okay, 15 percent, 20 percent, 25 percent. I mean, this is really massive credit growth. Okay, um, non-performing loans essentially non-existing and then some big, big raise. Uh, and these are the provisions. I mean, it's not such an enormous number. Okay? If you think about it, we've been talking about hundreds of billions. The total provisions in 2007 reached 30 billion. Okay? It's, it's a nice number. But compared to the total loan book of these banks, it's maybe 1%, 2% uh, 
of assets. Okay, these are these are relatively small, small, small shares, one and a half percent of total assets. These are small shares. Now, of course, the banks have been using these provisions to cover their losses over this time, and they've been building the other, the old-fashioned type of provisions in the meantime, trying to to build in advance of the losses that were going to be happening. So the provisions did provide a bit of a cushion, but they didn't stop the, the accumulation of leverage. Here you see the leverage of financial institutions. I, I had a, a very nice chat with a, with a person who was a regulator of the, of the Bank of Spain in the past, and he said if a bank went over 80% leverage, which means 80%, this is the um, credit relative to deposits. Okay? If I have $1 of deposit, how much do I lend? In the past, I would lend 80, 80 cents. And if any bank went over 80 cents, he would be in trouble. The regulator would say, you're lending too much. Um, you see that in 1999, still below one. And then you have these few years of massive raise in leverage. That means these banks basically have more than one and a half times loan out of when they have in deposits. And this particularly happens to cajas. And as we'll see, I mean, cajas are a very big mechanism through which leverage takes place. This is a caja that is already non-existing, it's going in trouble. But it also happens big, 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 big terms for, for banks. Look at Popular, 173. These are, I think these are basically current numbers, half of the first half of 2010. Uh, Bank Inter, 238%. So two, more than two times loans uh, to deposit ratio. Um, I want to give you one more peculiarity of the Spanish system. So the regulator was pretty tough with off-balance sheet liabilities. They didn't let the Spanish banks to go out and lend some crazy mortgage originator from California who was driving around giving loans to everybody. That didn't happen in Spain. And they didn't allow them to have off-balance sheet vehicles. Okay? So there was none of these shenanigans of, you know, I give all these big loans and then I finance it to short-term uh, commercial paper and I take it off my balance sheet and do as if I'm not responsible for it. That didn't happen in Spain. So were, were there really important incentive misalignments? I think there was a sector where there were important incentive misalignments that, that were problematic. And that sector was the Cajas. Um, the Cajas are an institution that is really very powerful in Spain and in Germany and in few other places. There are Cajas in France and Italy. They privatize them. But basically in Spain and Germany, those are the, the big places where they have this Landesbank in, in Germany, Cajas in, in Spain. Um, they are non-for-profit credit institutions. They do not um, lend, uh, they do not generate profits, but they are owned by a foundation. And the profits they do, they reinvert in the community. For example, when I went to the US to do my PhD, I had a scholarship from La Caixa, which is a very large financial institution from Catalonia, which one of the ways they use their profit, instead of generating profit for shareholders, they give grants for people to study abroad. Um, many of my fellow, of my fellow uh, professors all over the, 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 the the world from Spain are, have, have been studying thanks to those grants. Now, in the past, they were provincial. They had to exercise their activity with their own province. So uh, the Caja de Avila had to be in Avila. It couldn't go around opening Cajas in uh, offices, branches in Barcelona or in Valencia. But uh, there was a change of laws in 1988 that allowed them to grow beyond there to the region. And in 1992, with the directive, with the Common Market Directives of the European Union, the free service, uh, the liberalization of the Second Banking Directive, allowed for all the financial institutions to open whatever they wanted. So all the cajas started to open in other places. 
They grew, market share of the cajas grew significantly. This is market share they're stealing from the banks. Think of how fast is credit growing, and you're not only growing as fast as credit, but you're growing faster because you're taking market share from the banks. And how were they growing? In a very saturated market with lots of branches, with lots of credit, where credit was not limited, how were they growing? The way they were growing is they would go to another province and they would lend money to a developer, to a real estate developer. The purpose is once you lend money to the real estate developer, then the developer is going to sell the houses and all of those mortgages are going to come from your caja. So all those clients are going to be mortgage clients for you and deposit clients, and that's how you enter into that market. That means you have to get the real estate development business in order to enter in that place. And that means that the real estate development business became extremely competitive. Basically, there was free money all around. You didn't have to put any money down. If you were a developer, you just started to get loans and building. And that also meant that there was a lot of adverse selection. If a good development was coming up, Santander or BBVA could be there. If, if a Caja who had no experience in that province, and no contacts in that province, was going to get to be the one making those loans, you had to worry about why is nobody else giving these loans, and you or some small institution from some other province is going to make them. Okay? So most likely, you're making the bad loans. Okay? So the Cajas played an important role. I, I wrote a paper last year with Vicente Cunyat, who's a professor here as well, uh, as faculty here as well, showing that um, we actually studied the loan books of the Cajas, and we found that many Cajas are very non-professionally managed. Basically, they have managers who are, have no banking experience. They have, I mean, this, many of the managers are politicians. Essentially, this is run for other purposes. It's a non-profit, but also it's an institution that you can use for patronage, you can give loans to favored projects, etc. So it's almost inevitable that politicians will have an interest in, in, in getting to, 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 to run those businesses. And as a result, what you observe is lack of experience. What we found is that basically when the bank, when the chairman of the Caja doesn't have any experience, he had, a, a, the book had more real estate loans, less loans to individuals, uh, more non-performing loans, and bigger drops in ratings. Essentially, Many of the cajas were growing without knowing what they were doing. They were just giving loans left and right. The bosses didn't have education, banking education. They didn't have banking experience. And that explains a big part of the non-performing loan performance of these cajas. Okay? So essentially, the growth is real estate-based, real estate developer-based. And cajas are growing a lot. They're getting a lot of leverage. They're getting a lot of bad loans in this way. Okay? So. What we see is an accumulation of debt. I showed you before the same graph with the sums. Now you see the components. You see that some countries have a lot of public debt, like Italy. Some countries have a lot of private debt, like the US. Spain is one of the second. It has a very limited, very small amount of public debt. One thing that people don't understand right now with the crisis is that um, Ireland didn't have any debt. And Spain almost doesn't have any debt. Okay? Ireland got all the debt because it went out and rescued foolishly all the banks, which it couldn't afford. These were massive banks. And Ireland decided to guarantee all these loans, which meant that essentially all these poor taxpayers who had nothing to do with these lending decisions end up holding 50,000 pounds of debt. Okay? Um, Spain, in some sense, is similar. I mean, hopefully we're not going to have to rescue those big banks, in the sense that the public debt is basically very affordable. The problem is a very large amount of private debt. Uh, only the UK, uh, in Ireland, of course, but only the UK among the large countries has a more a higher level of private debt. 
Um, you know about this because you know about Barclays and about uh, Royal Bank of Scotland, about Lloyd's. And we know it's not a topic for today of, of conversation. Um, so a large amount of private debt is not just something that I have the debt, but I have the assets against the rest of the world. It really is, when you look at the net international investment position, how much do I owe versus how much other people owe me, you still see that the position of Spain is worse than for other countries. So the United Kingdom, which has a lot of debt, also has a lot of assets against the rest of the world. Okay, so I, I was arguing before that this is an, a significant difference between Spain and other countries. Who actually, I was joking about Germans before, who was actually lending to Spain? Um, so this is Germany, this is France, this is Italy, this is G Great Britain, uh, Japan, the US. What you're gonna see is that um, between France and the other Europe area and Germany, that's the, basically the largest part. And when you look at basically who was funding, this is going to tell you uh, foreign claims on the public sector, on banks, and on the private sector. And what you see is that the claims on banks are very much German. The claims from the private sector are more, a little bit more French and, and, the, and the rest of the euro area. But essentially, it's a euro-to-euro -euro problem. To some extent, this is an argument to say that the problem to, to some extent, it's a political problem. It's not like, I mean, the, Germany is the creator, Spain is the debtor, and there is no, if, if, if you were like in a situation where Cali, like California, where California is owing money to New York, nobody's going to be saying, oh, California owes money to New York, thus the dollar is in trouble. That doesn't make any sense, right? California can go under, California might be in trouble, but the dollar is never going to be in trouble. This is a political problem because because when Spain owns money to, the German, to, to Germany, part of the question is, does this mean something for the currency? Does this mean that if Germany is not willing to bail out or if Spain goes under, does it mean something for the, for the common currency? And this is the thing that makes the crisis go up one notch. Because once you're thinking, it's not just some Spanish bank might go under. Like in California, you might think this California school system or the California university are going to be in trouble. Who cares? It doesn't mean that Google is going to be in trouble. Nobody's going to start lending, stop lending money to Google, which is based in Palo Alto, because California is in trouble. It does, there's, there's no relation, right? But once you think, oh, Spain's in trouble, and Spain's a separate political entity, and Spain might have to rescue the banks like England, like Ireland, then you have at least some reason to think, oh, does it mean something for the country as a whole? What we have learned in these last couple of years is that countries matter a lot, that you cannot just abstract, like in, in California, it's not like the US is going to have to rescue California. If California has trouble, maybe California goes under. Who cares? Okay, New York had trouble and he had to go under. Some other states have been bankrupt in, in, in other moments in the, U, in the United States history. It hasn't meant that the companies in those countries or the banks in those places, in those states, etc., would be in trouble. Okay, you could separate the agents. Here, we come back to thinking, oh, is this country going to be in trouble? Is this country going to have to bail out its own banks? Are the other countries going to carry it off? Okay. The good news, though, is that Spain does have kind of a Samsung strategy, if you want to put it this way. We are big. We owe a lot of money. And when you're big and you owe a lot of money, people have to treat you with care, right? Um, <laughs> hopefully. The crisis. So we've said real estate bubble um, with the underlying weak productivity model, finance from abroad, particularly through the real estate money going to the cajas. Foreign lenders like real estate because they don't understand business. They are not going to lend money to some business in Spain that they don't understand. 
But real estate is easy. There's a pledgeable asset. You give me money, there is a house. I can show you, that's the house, okay? So it's easy always to get money into this real estate. And that's the problem, that at the end of the day, a lot of the collateral in all, this, in all the economies in the Western world, for all we want to talk about ideas and all that, a lot of the collateral is physical. And at the end, that's, that's kind of uh, leading to all these bubbles where the collateral starts increasing in, in value, and then people can borrow more, and then the collateral increases more, etc. Okay, the crisis. So the crisis in Spain is unusual, as I'm going to show you. There was no financial crisis for quite a while. Okay? The crisis was the other way around. There was a real crisis. The institutions, the financial institutions were fine. Everybody was like, okay, we're surviving. We have all these generic provisions I showed you before. So we can continue. Okay? The financial crisis happened next in a very sudden way. So the first stage is the sudden stop of construction and a big drop in demand with a huge drop in employment. And this is not going to surprise you, having seen those big, big uh, S-curves that uh, employment goes up and down like a, like a, like a mountain, like a, like a very rugged mountain scape. Um, the number of transactions of housing stopped. Ba basically, the housing market from one quarter to the next just basically stopped. I mean, you talk to people in Spain, they just put their houses, okay, this is 210,000 transactions. A couple of, a few quarters later, there is 90,000 transactions. There is per quarter. There's just no transactions, very few transactions taking place. A much bigger drop than in the US, okay? In the US, what, what, as I'm going to show you in a second, the adjustment happened more in prices. The housing prices dropped, but people continue buying and selling at lower prices. In Spain, people are living in their own residence or have the second residence to go on the weekends or to go in, uh, or for their kids when they are older. A lot of people have, have um, all their financial, all their wealth in real estate, so they just say, well, I'll sit on my house, it's empty, who cares? In the US, the, the, price, the, the existing house sales didn't drop as much. In Spain, it dropped precipitously. What dropped in the US was the prices. Okay? So in Spain, all of this rate, uh, increase in price that I showed you before has resulted in a drop in prices of less than 15%. Okay? These numbers are good, I think. I mean, my first hypothesis when I've seen these numbers a year and a half ago was to say this has to be wrong. People have to be cutting prices much more. But I've looked and I've asked and I've checked and, I've, and I think the numbers are right, which is shocking. I mean, how can the prices not be dropping much more? I think there are two reasons. First, the, bank is, the banks are sitting on them. They are not selling these houses because once you sell, you have to price again your, 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 all your assets at the new prices. But second is uh, families are just holding on to them and saying, well, the prices will come back. Okay. Um, this led to a drop in GDP, the housing construction stops, etc. There's a drop in GDP, that's normal. Okay? So Spain had GDP growth rate 30.7, 2008, 1.2, uh, 2009, pretty big drop. But notice, there's nothing unusual here. The euro area dropped by more than Spain okay, until 2009. What is really, really unusual is the unemployment rate. Uh, 2007, 8.3, 2008, 11.3, 2009, 8%, 8%, 18%. Look at the euro area unemployment. If you look at the UK, nothing happened. Unemployment rate in the UK almost didn't increase. By comparison, okay, yeah, people talk about unemployment increasing, etc. But I mean, look at this, okay, from 8 to 18. This year, growth was still positive. It was growing quite a bit, 1.2%. Unemployment had already climbed by three points. And this year, we had the same drop in GDP from 1.2 to minus 3, the same change. And uh, look at what happened to Europe. They increased unemployment by two, by two points. 
So what happens in the Spanish uh, uh, labor market, what happens in the Spanish labor market is that it has a larger ability to destroy employment per point of GDP than any other market. Okay? For Lithuanians to manage to destroy this amount of employment, they had to destroy 19% of GDP. Okay? Spain managed to do that with just destroying 4% of GDP. Okay? So the economy is very inefficient at the labor market works in a very, very inefficient way. That's why I was, I was saying, as Nacho was saying, a group of economists have done really massive effort with putting a blog and with making lots of articles, etc., trying to get um, consciousness of what was happening to the labor market. Uh, this is not the construction sector. Even if you exclude the construction sector, it's still the case that Spain is able to destroy more employment than other countries. Um, the unemployment growth is very unequal. It affects particularly the young people. And this is uh, something that all of us are very worried. And I don't understand why nothing is happening socially, happily. I mean, these people are living at home. Uh, families are really strong. They're taking care of kids, etc. But 40% of people below 25 years old are unemployed. People who want to work are unemployed. Um, there's a large generation, 750,000, who don't have secondary education and who don't have employment. And I mean, you just don't see where they're going to get. A lot of these people were expecting to work in two sectors in Spain where many, many sectors of the economy, the low productivity sectors that explain the low productivity I was talking about, like tourism, like putting bricks, etc. those are sectors where you don't need any education. You can go out to Valencia and start serving seven drinks, and that doesn't really require a lot of education. And so now those people have been doing that maybe in the past, and now are going to find it difficult to get a, to get a job. Um, so why is the market working so badly? Part of the story is the wages. The way wages are set in Spain is really horrendous. Basically, it's Soviet style. Some trade unions sit around and decide what's going to be the increase in bargaining wages, and that's what it is. This is, uh, I know some people will disagree with that, with that characterization. But, uh, this, this is the increase in wages. Okay, I'm going to show you without the graph. I'll come back to the graph in a second. I call this market by market, and you're going to see why. The construction industry had a drop in employment of 23% in 2009. The real wages went up by 3.9%. Okay? I mean, normally you think if the demand for like oranges or something drops by 30%, the price of oranges is not going to be raising. Something weird is happening, right? So look what happens. With this small drop in GDP, this was the drop in employment. And in the meantime, real wages were increasing. This is the largest increase in real wages to take place in a very long time. And it's not because inflation was unexpected. As you see here, it's not the inflation that explains that, okay? because already the nominal bargain wage was very high. Look at the UK. Look at the UK. We calculated the same graph for the UK, and what you see is Employment, the GDP drop is bigger. This gets down to minus 6%, which in Spain it never does. But wages adjust. Many of these quarters are negative wage growth. These are gro negative, 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 all these quarters. And here there's a tiny increase. And employment doesn't really drop by as much. Okay? If, if, if you have some adjustment in prices, you don't have to have all the adjustment in quantities. So of course, what happens is the public finances turn around. And people say, oh, it's because of Keynesian policies, etc." Nothing of that. What basically happens is a lot of the income of the state is coming from real estate taxes. And once those taxes go away, the income disappears. Okay? What you see is the 
that finances huge swing in public finances from a superavage, a surplus of 2% to a deficit of 11.5% for Spain. Huge, huge swing in a couple of years. Uh, of course, the debt, which in Spain was pretty low, as I was saying before, is increasing at, at that large high rate. And this is what I was telling you about the, the revenues. I mean, it is really a revenue story, not an expenses story. What is happening here is this is the, this is the, the governor, monthly government revenue at 9 billion. Here it gets to 14 billion and basically disappears again. These are all the taxes that are related to all those housing transactions I was showing you, be, showing you before. Okay? So no matter what the state is doing or not doing expansionary fiscal policies, this is going to tell you you're going to be in big trouble. Okay? So we have the first stage. Housing drops, the um, financial market, uh, sorry, the um, employment increases a lot. And then suddenly, you have trouble in the financial institutions. You could say it's been brewing for a while. But what you have is this generalized doubt that many analysts and many outside observers have. Can these banks really, with such a phenomenal bubble, with so much investment in real estate, be healthy? There's a lot of concern in the market. Can these cajas, can this financial sector, which we know has been basically 50% of the loans, as I showed you before, were uh, for, for what probably is a non-productive activity, like building real, the real estate development. It's going to prove to be zero cash flow, probably, or, or, or negative cash flow in some cases. Can that be? Okay, so the market's kind of worried. And what you see is that. Basically, the doubts about the viability of the, of the financial system means that the wholesale market disappears. Okay? Basically, there's very little lending to Spanish financial institutions. In fact, between uh, May last year, um, April, May, June last year, Spanish institutions couldn't go to the markets to borrow anything. Okay? Um, the public debt also suffers, and Spain basically starts to, people start to have this fear that Spain's position in the euro is not sustainable. It doesn't have the competitiveness. It continues having a current account deficit. And then the financial crisis, which is the second stage, happens. Here I show you the credit default swaps on the, on the banks. Basically, the price of insuring the, the bank debt uh, for Spain, you see how it's basically been creeping up. It has kind of a, a couple of moments of, of, of going up in May, June last year, and now again in this last period is, is really of looking back. Of course, um, as the, the Council of Foreign Relations was arguing a couple of days ago in, in, in a document they came up with, part of what's happening as well is that as the CDSs, as the, as the banks start to be in trouble, foreign depositors might take some of their money out of the institution. And that's a big concern. Because if you, if you think about it, if there is one structural, big structural flaw in the euro, in the euro construction, there's many structural flaws, but there is one big structural flaw is that the lender of last resort, the person who guarantees your money, has to have the ability to print notes. Okay? Because you know he's always going to be able to give you as many notes as, as he wants. If he doesn't have the ability to print notes, then it's a question. right? And the Spanish state or the German state is the one who guarantees the deposits. Of course, the European Central Bank guarantees, hopefully, that. But there is always an issue there that, that is, that is, that is um, tricky. So why? As I told you, big amount of real estate loans. That's the same 44% I showed you before. These are loans to developers and construction loans. So let me tell you, if you had to just know two words about after, when you get out of here, about what's the Spanish problem about, you would just know. One, that is about real estate and developer loans. Okay? And it's about growth. That those are the two things that I'm going to try to, to get you to take out. Okay? So these are the real estate and developer loans. 
Um, 44% of GDP. This Bank of Spain says that uh, less than half of them are troubled, and they say that 42% are well provisioned. Okay, so that's that's the extent of the exposure. It could it could be larger, and um, and that the issue is how much of those real stock construction and real estate loans. Developers are 32% of GDP, 325 billion. Okay, I'm going to show you that in a second. I'm going to do a few numbers here, but hopefully this is the number. I'm going to actually run through them. So that this is the non-performing loan of the developers. I think developers are probably, many people think the developers are in worse shape than that. Um, so here is, as I, as I was telling you before, part of the reason that we are in crisis is because the market fears that they don't quite understand what's happening in Spain. And what do they not understand? One of the things that the market wonders is, this is the amount of outstanding loans to developers. As you can imagine, no new development is starting in Spain right now. And you would presumably expect that some loans are being repaid. So you would expect that outstanding loans would be declining. In fact, construction loans are declining as people repay the loans. What you see here is, since the start of the crisis at 300 billion, the number of outstanding loans for real estate development has been increasing very slowly. Suggesting what's happening is that the banks, the developer goes to the bank, says, I cannot pay. The bank says, Woof, we cannot put this loan as a loss. And so it says, well, I'll give you money to basically, or the Caja, I'll give you money to basically refinance the loan and continue the transaction. That's how this number looks. Okay? It doesn't look like people are starting, are repaying all loans and starting new developments because the truth of the matter is no new developments can be getting started in Spain. now. So that's one source for concern. A second sort of concern is, are the Cajas really being transparent about their, their non-performing loans? Look how it was growing parallel for Cajas and for banks. And suddenly at this moment, the Cajas basically stopped growing. Okay? Um, are the non-performing loan numbers for the Cajas correct? The two cajas that were intervened by the Bank of Spain showed much larger numbers of non-performing loans than the ones they were declaring. And people wonder, is this true for many other cajas? So that's the second cause for people to be a bit, a bit worried. Here's a very nice Credit Suisse analysis um, of how the non-performing loans are happening. These are the two months before you close the quarter, and this is the month when you close the quarter. Two months before you close, the month you close. Do you see the pattern? Two months before you close, the month you close. It seems like you declare lots of, you find lots of people who owe you money, and then suddenly you don't find anybody. Okay? And that happens exactly when you have to show your numbers to the outside world. Okay? So this is a pattern that looks like the numbers might be, might be massage, or, or at least kind of makes you wonder. Of course, non-performing loans are always very related to unemployment numbers, and the unemployment numbers are bad, so you always worry are, are, what, what is going to happen over the, over the near term with non-performing loans. So what are the reactions to the run? Uh, we've seen four things. I'm, I'm, I'm closing. I, I'll, I'll, I'll hurry a little bit. I don't want to, to hold you too long. We've seen four things that I'll cover very fast. Basically, appeal to the ECB. Spanish banks have appealed. When, when the run happened in, in April, May, June, when everybody was refusing to lend to Spanish banks, the ECB stepped in. Second, you see um, repo facilities, huge growth in and internal, they create a sp internal Spanish repo facilities so the banks can uh, repo their own assets and get lo short-term loans. And you see a deposit war. I'm going to be very quick on these things. This is the ECB funding that grew up very much in the 
in the during the during the two moments of the crisis in May, April, etc. Um, Spain, as a proportion of, of its assets, is not so large because Spain is a big country, so it was, it's not as bad as it might appear, but the ECB did step in. This is the use of, repo, of the new repo market in Spain. A repo is where you take an asset that you can repo, which is, a, a, for example, a treasury bill, and you get cash in exchange, and then you, you give back your asset and you get the cash. So it's like a collateralized loan. They created the banks, the Spanish banks couldn't go to the international bank market, so they created a facility which is called MEF where they could do those transactions internally. So that's one other solution that the Spanish financial institutions came up with. The third thing they did is a deposit war. All the Spanish banks have this sign saying, you can come and, and you'll get a big, a big uh, uh, return on your deposits. Of course, what that means is that the difference between what, your, what the Spanish banks are getting for the money they lend and what they are paying for the money they borrow as deposits is shrinking. And this is the difference between the new mortgage rate and the deposit rate for Spanish banks. So that's kind of shrinking in Spain. Um, then the government took some measures, uh, austerity measures. So what this is the fourth reaction. This is the public reaction. The government took some austerity measures. And the Bank of Spain also had some responses. The, 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 the measures by the government are two types. Uh, first, it cut on the budget deficit in, in order to try to kind of uh, convince the market that it, that, that it was not in, in a bad financial position. It um, basically the European, the, the, the spreads of the government debt, the government debt has been becoming bad, not because the Spanish man, government owns, owes so much money, but because the markets fear if the banks or the cajas were in trouble, would the Spanish government have to pay for that? And so this, there's a contagion coming from the, uh, the financial system spreads that I showed you before to the banks, uh, to the government, sorry. This is uh, basically the, all the countries that you've heard uh, now. This is, Port this is Portugal, and this is Spain, and that's Greece and Ireland. Um, Italy, of course. Belgium, I think this is Belgium. Uh, is Italy, sorry. It's also kind of showing um, the strains. Um, that's the Spanish government bond yield, which has been growing. It's not still at the rates at which it was at the start of the decade. So it's not catastrophic. But on the other hand, at the start of the decade, we were growing very fast. So you can pay big interest rates when you're doing very well. And now it's harder. So the Spanish government decided to cut its budget deficit. And, uh, and they've been doing very well. These are the last numbers. The primary balance, if you look at the primary balance in 2009, for example, just to look at October, it was minus 34,000. Now it's minus, sorry, it was minus 57,000, now it's minus 34,000. They've done a very massive effort to cut the deficit. And it's basically an increase in revenue. They increased the value added taxes. As you can see here, there's a big increase. Uh, and, and, and that's really uh, very good news. Okay, the government is really fulfilling its promises in terms of deficit. Um, of course, the risks that people fear are the bailouts and other regions. The regions have a lot of autonomy. They have autonomy to spend, but they don't have an autonomy to, to, to raise money. So the regional governments tend to be too easy on, on spending and don't tend to take the difficult decisions. We'll see what happens with Catalonia, which just declared that the deficit they were going to have was 2.5% of GDP is more like 3.7%. Um, so the regions are, are an issue. Of their own deficit, sorry, not of Spain. Okay? It's of, of the Catalan GDP. Um, and then they did some structural reforms trying to address this productivity issue. You have a lot of debt. What your creditors are going to want to know is that you can grow to repay the debt. 
And Spain, as we said, didn't have productivity growth. It's not going to be able to invest in BRICS. So how is it going to grow in the, in the future? The government says the problem is the labor market. The problem are all these structural reforms that need to be made so that the markets start to work. So adjustments happen. People change from one side of jobs to another side, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? So there were some, some reforms. As I told you, there was a little labor reform. We were very happy, the group of economists that, that were working on this, we were very happy with the the royal decree, the introduction of the royal decree, it identifies all the problems in the labor market, it says exactly what needs to be done, but when you look at the actual articles in the statute, as always, then uh, that's less less of a, of a, I mean, it's hard to make these reforms because there are the unions and there are all these, but the government has been trying to do those reforms, so at least that's, that's a plus. Pension reform is potentially coming at the end of the month, the government has promised. Housing market, there were some changes, and there was a new Cajas law that allowed them to become banks. There were stress tests that showed that Spain, Spanish banks were so were pretty well, and they were so good that stress tests that we're going to do them again. Uh, that's happened to all of Europe. The, the stress tests uh, in the summer. I mean, Spain did it much more tough than other countries, but still, the markets are worried about. Um, the, the, the assumptions were pretty tough, but the markets are worried about whether they were tough enough. And indeed, the European Central Bank, the funding increased once the market thought, hey. These banks and these cars are actually well provisioned, they're well run, they have good assets, and they are going to, they're going to be all right. Okay? Um, so, so they were back to the markets, but now again, we have a situation where there is a, a, a problem. They changed the provision schedules, this is too technical, I'm not going to be, but basically they forced the banks to be more transparent, to provision more the loans, so they can really say, look, we're actually in good shape, don't worry, we're actually being very tough, tougher than other places. Spain does have a more transparent and tougher provision scaling than any other country right now. So the bank, of, the central bank is trying to do that. And the other thing they did is merge the cajas so that you merge a good caja with a bad one and hopefully you get a lot of the losses are absorbed by the reserves of the good caja. For example, uh, the, the main uh, Basque caja, BBK, was the best run and the most, they, they had the highest profitability of any Spanish caja, and he took over probably the very worst of all ones, which is this Caja Sur, which was run by the uh, Catholic Church, and the CEO and everybody else were priests, and you can imagine that they didn't very much know what they were doing. Um, so I was going to talk about those, but I am now running out of time, so I won't talk. The, the, the main issue, really, apart from the financial system, is can Spain grow? What is the future? If, you know, if the Spanish government is not in trouble, so here's, here's, here's the key issue. The Spanish government is not in trouble. If some financial institutions, which are not the main ones, so Caja Santander, BBVA, La Caixa are in good shape. If some of the bad institutions have to go under, that's not a big deal. Okay? As long as the Spanish state doesn't do the stupid thing of the Irish government and try to rescue everybody and start writing checks left and right to all the banks, that shouldn't be the end of the world. But we need the growth to come out of this debt. Households, corporations, etc., are pretty leveraged. The question is, can we grow? Spain is not Ireland, okay? Ireland has a much larger banking sector. The banking assets were five times GDP. In Spain, the banking assets are less than the Eurozone area, three times GDP. So it's a much smaller banking sector, and it has many more provisions, okay? Spain's banks have 8% on average provision as a, a reserves as a proportion of banking assets versus Ireland, which had two points less in the euro area, which has much less. So Spain is not Ireland. It doesn't have to end up in the same way. Um, and it has good things. There's, there was a lot of fiscal consolidation in the past, and that means the level of public debt is, lo is low. 
there is a huge, massive investment infrastructure. I mean, there's excellent highways, excellent infrastructure all around. And there's a very strong corporate sector that we never had in the past. Companies like Zara, which are worldwide, there's a lot of companies that are all over the place. So there are some good fundamentals that make, make you think that, that Spain could do well. For example, these companies, in spite of the increase in labor cost I told you before, the loss of competitiveness in Spain versus the average, look at the, look at the, uh, at the performance of Germany. Okay? The country which is the biggest is the one that has gained most competitiveness in the Euro start, since the Euro started. Okay? They are 13% lower than the average, and Spain has gotten 8% uh, more expensive than the average. Okay? So Spain got more expensive, less competitive, but if you look at the... At the um, of the, in spite of the competitive loss, the exports held up very well. Spain, which is here, the, this, this light blue, has lost market share. Okay? The Spanish companies have continued exporting, and in fact, they have, become, they have been sufficiently competitive and sufficiently productive that they have continued exporting abroad. So though that corporate sector is promising, and it's in good condition, and has held up very well. Um, there are two, two long-term issues. One is demographics, which is common to most of Europe. Let me just remind you, like the, the pyramid, the population pyramid in Spain, like in many places in Europe, in Southern Europe, is turning very much, in, inverting itself. So that the, the I, I didn't translate it, sorry. Um, the the uh, ratio of uh, young people to old people is going down from 4 to 1.7. Um, 75 over the next 50 years, so the pension reform is really a priority. That's one term long-term issue. The other long-term issue for Spain is the productivity. As I showed you before, all this growth period that we've been talking about happened without any productivity growth. That's unusual. That's not very common to see a country where basically for uh, the years between 95 and 2005, there, there basically was no productivity growth. We just grew by adding more labor and more machines to doing the same things that we were doing before. So for productivity needs to, be, needs, to, needs to recover. That has to do with the film size distribution. Spanish firms of the same size are as productive as firms of other countries of the same size. In fact, they are even more productive. If you see by size, the Spanish firm, which is the top one, is either bigger or smaller than the US or similar, either bigger or the same level as the US. So by size, Spanish firms are very productive. The problem is that there is a lot of small mom and pop companies. So part of the change has to be to grow, to get productivity has to be. We need to have the regulation that allows the small companies to grow and the human capital that allows the small companies to grow. Exports, similarly, small firms in Spain export more than the small firms in Germany. The medium firms in Spain export the same as the medium firms in Germany. And the large firms export more than the large firms in Germany. By size, the Spanish firms are as good as in any other country. But then why is the productivity and the export performance problematic? Because we have a lot of little firms that don't invest, that don't grow, and that basically don't have the, the, the possibility to compete. Why? In part because of the regulation. Uh, Spain has very poor rankings on the international comparisons of the pressure that businesses feel when they try to grow from the regulatory environment. And that's a slide from the World Economic Forum. Um, Partly from collective bargaining, where a lot of collective bargaining, as I was telling you, is a bit Stalinist. It takes place at the provincial level. The provincial officials meet and decide how much the wages are going to grow in that province, in that sector. And that might be good for some firms, but for some other firms, it squeezes some firms, makes it impossible to grow for others. Um, 
a lot of temporary employment. This graph is pretty shocking when you think what it is. Basically, this graph says, if you started to work as a temporary worker when you were 18 years old, um, when you are 45 years old, 40% of the 45 years old who are starting to work at 20, who are working for all these years, that cohort, this is one cohort, 40% of those guys are still on temporary contracts. That means those guys are not becoming productive because they are not training, they are changing jobs, they are not really joining the productive economy. And as a result, training suffers, the level of training in Spain is lower. There are some problems with the educational system that I think are crucial for the productivity performance. This is the share of people who drop out of the educational system before, between 18 and 24, don't have a secondary, advanced secondary degree. Uh, Spain is really very high up in that league. And similarly, and that's not really improving, okay? Spain is not really improving that dropout performance. We have a lot of university graduates, more than the UK, but we also have more dropouts, a lot of dropouts. Um, and these are people who neither work nor study. These are 750,000 young people who neither work nor study. Okay, so, uh, and the university performance is problematic. We don't really have world-class universities like this one, or like Cambridge, or like Oxford. So, basically, for productivity to, to continue or to, to really restart, uh, there have to be regulatory changes, particularly in the labor market. There have to be substantial changes in terms of the education system, the training, etc. And the Spanish firms have to grow and have to acquire the right size. Um, so what happened to Spain? I'm done. What happened to Spain? There was a big boom that masked a lot of unresolved problems. The labor market, the real estate markets were not working. Uh, they revealed that there was underlying the boom. Spain was not really not doing as well as the governor of the Bank of Spain put it in his 2003 uh, article. Um, basically, the euro meant that there was a lot of uh, loss of competitiveness that is now hard to correct. And in, in spite of that, the political system was not trying to correct that. Okay? So Germany priced itself out of, all this, all out of the markets with the reunification in 1990, and it went through this branching period of, of many years of really low wage growth and trying to recover competitiveness and trying to get back uh, into, into, into the world markets that, that it might have lost and trying to, to get back into, into competitiveness. Spain didn't have that. It really didn't reform the economy and it didn't try to recover that competitiveness. What has to happen? Uh, Spain has to grow. Um, Spain should not go Irish. Okay? I mean, the main thing that has to happen is that Spain doesn't rescue whatever Caja is in trouble. And if any Caja needs to go under, it needs to go under. The, the, the rule that has invaded us all, the new conventional wisdom that banks cannot fail, is a crazy idea. And it's very damaging uh, because it means that people who took very terrible decisions are being let home free and people who didn't have anything to them have to rescue them. Um, so Spain shouldn't go Irish and rescue whatever institution has trouble and we should never, for sure, not accept a rescue from the European Union or from the IMF under no circumstances. And I hope that's never going to come to that. Um, and in the meantime, we need to work on the productivity differentials, on the education, on the regulation, etc. And this is my blog for those who read Spanish uh, to read more about this. Thank you very much for your attention. Sorry I went on.